Hello and welcome to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the sixth episode of Lent Term 2019, in a series of brief conversations with academics who have come to present at our weekly seminar. Thanks for listening. My name is Clemency Anderson and I'm a PhD student at Newnham College here at the University of Cambridge. I'm delighted to be joined today by Susan L. Carruthers, Professor of American Studies at the University of Warwick. Susan's work examines representations of war and the ways in which individuals and societies respond and make sense of conflict. She is the author of several significant books spanning the history of the 20th and 21st century. Her book, Winning Hearts and Minds, published in 1995, examines propaganda as a counterinsurgency strategy in post-war colonial conflicts. She has also written about the perception of captivity in the Cold War era and studied the media's perpetuation and portrayal of war and conflict. Her most recent book, The Good Occupation, published in 2016, focuses on American service men and women who remained in occupied territory to bring order and justice to societies ravaged by war. Susan's work is marked by her critical insight and exploration of intimate human thoughts and feelings, which she locates in rich archival material and paints vividly for the reader. Thank you, Professor Carruthers, for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> We're going to begin by discussing your paper before hearing about your wider research and your broader experiences as a historian. Your paper for this week is titled Inventing the Dear John, Romance, Rupture and Recuperation in World War II America. It's a pre-circulated paper, so members of the seminar have already read it, but could you give a brief synopsis of your paper for the benefit of today's listeners? Sure. So the very big question that, that, that's preoccupying me right now and that I'm hoping to expand into a book is to investigate how the US military over the course of successive wars has tried to mobilize romantic love as a resource for war making. So that's a very abstract theme, obviously, when I put it at its most open-ended. And so the trick is to figure out where do you go digging for material, for insight into this. And the place that I've started my inquiry is the Dear John letter. So for anyone in the audience who doesn't know what that is and has only ever been lucky in love, I should perhaps explain that a Dear John is a letter sent by a wife or a girlfriend, a fiancé, to a man, in this instance a serviceman, letting him know that their relationship is, is over. So that was a, an expression that was coined in World War II. So the paper that everyone's been reading for the seminar deals with the, the sort of origins of, of the Dear John letter, and it's rooted in one particular story um, of a, a romance, a ruptured romance seemingly, um, between a young woman who lived in Newark, New Jersey, which was my hometown for uh, well over a decade, and her, her boyfriend who was in Europe, somewhere in Britain at the time. He received a short female from her telling him to go to hell. So that's, uh, that's what the paper deals with. Great. Um, so your paper begins with the description of a curated archive of wartime letters. And in all sorts of ways, this, this theme of curation recurs in your project, from the military sensitive of mail, the self-curation in women's letter writing, to the selective memory of war veterans in hindsight. So I wonder then if you could elaborate on how the nature of curated sources has shaped your approach to this project. Yeah, I think that's a great question because something that I have been discovering, so I've been working on and off on this project since I finished The Good Occupation. So for three years or so, um, I've been delving around 
thinking in the first instance that what I was looking for were going to be these Dear John letters written by women sent to men. But what soon became apparent is that there really aren't Dear John letters <laughs> conveniently lurking around in the archives waiting for me to excavate them. Um, and maybe with not very much reflection, it's not surprising that these aren't the letters that guys tend to keep. They, they quickly do all sorts of other things with them, but what they don't do is lovingly preserve them and then decades later uh, present them to to an archive. So it's requiring quite a lot of ingenuity to try to figure out where I am looking for, for source material. And what's become clear to me is that the Dear John letter really exists through male storytelling and, and male forms of soldiers, forms of, of sort of recuperative play, ritual, and, and so on. So some of the places that I've been looking most especially are at collections of, of oral histories, and, and the place I've spent the longest thus far in, in any sort of stint of, of research is the the Library of Congress's um, Veterans History Project. And, and that's a really intriguing collection I mean, if we're talking about curation because all sorts of people who are making interviews with veterans for all sorts of different reasons send them to the Library of Congress. And it's very capacious, it's wildly variegated. So you find all sorts of things from Girl Scouts who are making interviews with, with veterans who may be their granddads or maybe some other random wow. veteran to people who are doing this under the aegis of the VA, so it has a much more therapeutic character to, to the interview. Um, and they're asking veterans all sorts of questions that professional historians would never dream of asking, and they clearly don't have to do the things that academics do, like getting institutional <laughs> review board approval for probing what's often very delicate kinds of psychological uh, materials. So um, that's just one example of, uh, you know, a, in some ways, are very uncurated. I mean, the, the Library of Congress expect, accepts anything and everything that it gets. So it, it's a real um, grab bag of all sorts of different things. So I spent two weeks there last last spring listening to a couple of hundred veterans' interviews. Anything, uh, um, anything that, that um, was tagged as having a Dear John vignette somewhere in it. Great, thank you. Um, so thinking about what you were saying about it being perhaps a male oral tradition, um, mm. I was really um, impacted by that and thinking about the way that Dear John letters could be militarised for functional utility in wartime is how mm. you describe it. So mm -hmm. I was wondering whether you could unpack whether the Dear John letter was a unifying marker of manhood, regardless of racial background, or mm. did this oral tradition remain squarely in the domain of white American soldiers? I would say it absolutely didn't. So in the, the paper that's being read for today, one of the sources that I use are, are newspapers, both civilian newspapers and, and sort of things like Stars and Stripes or, or Yank. So Yank magazine published the female that was sent by Anne in Newark, New Jersey to her boyfriend in England. Um, and so one of the things that makes that such an intriguing story is that because Yank published a facsimile of the female, including her address, she received a lot of mail from all sorts of soldiers and, and others who, who'd seen it there. Um, but at risk of, of getting myself sidetracked, I'll, I'll get back to your question <laughs> about race. So um, soldiers of all sorts of different ethnicities wrote to her, 
African-American newspapers published columns about Dear John letters. Um, African-American soldiers and civilians were very much in the same business that their white peers were of, of trying to warn women off writing these letters on the grounds that this would be horribly injurious mm. to men's morale and that this was a sort of shocking breach of, of wartime etiquette. So I haven't really found any racialized differences. I think that the sort of commonality that the African-American women too were being thoroughly encouraged by all sorts of sort of patriotic boosters to write, to write often, to write eternally upbeat letters to their men at war, not to write things that would suggest they were having too much fun. I mean, it's a very fine line that women were told that they had to tread, that they should remind soldiers that they were missed, but not too much. So, you know, if a woman seemed to be lapsing into dysfunction or sort of chronic um, loneliness without her soldier boyfriend, that was a bad thing. Um, she should remind him that she was doing well, but, but not obviously going out and, and living it up too much. So that was definitely a theme that I found in, in African-American newspapers, that, that women were being warned that they shouldn't be writing about the nights out they were having, the wild drunken parties that they were going to. And, and that was a theme definitely of, of white newspapers too. Great, thank you. And so um, this idea of the, the wartime etiquette for women, um, it reminds me of the fact that in your paper you compellingly describe the inconsistencies that plagued social expectations for both men and women um, in this period. And it seems to me maybe that the shock of wartime pushed some ideas about marriage and fidelity into flux. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the implications of your paper for historians conceptualising changing gender and family norms across the 20th century? Okay, well, I think that's obviously a huge question. Um, answering it in the first instance with regard to World War II, I think one of the things that's so fascinating is that this is a period of, of such heightened, accelerated social change that, that sort of ripples through all domains of society. So, uh, but it... it how it works on the terrain of, of marriage and gender relations is, is very uneven because there are sort of clear countervailing tendencies at, at work in, in popular culture and in the, the whole array of different venues in which women are being told what kinds of relationships are preferable, which ones are going to be functional to the project of waging war and which ones aren't. And so marriage, I think, occupies this very elastic kind of space that on the one hand, young men and women are being warned that that rushing to the altar mere days before the soldier boyfriend or newlywed husband is is sort of shipped off overseas might be a damaging and dangerous precedent to to pursue. Um, And and suddenly a lot of of wartime commentators are very invested in in the longevity of marriage as a key social institution are sounding all sorts of cautionary notes that that getting married for for, for these, well, for a whole array of different reasons that that impelled some young women and men to, to think about that would be probably damaging and they're looking back to World War One and thinking well what happens after World War One? it's this sort of epic spike in divorces so we can take this story back and see that yes indeed trends about getting married um, and perhaps not staying married after war predate World War Two. so I want to take my mm. story back at least to the First World War even though the Dear John hadn't been coined as a thing and, until 1942. Um, but I also want to trace my story forward. So I think sort of historians have obviously done a lot of work in thinking about um, the sort of course of, of marriage over the course of the 20th century. Um, who can marry whom is clearly something that, that states as well as the federal government have a lot of 
a lot of, of desire to to manage. And one sort of piece of the story, as I, I think it's taking shape, is also um, how soldiers serving overseas enter into romantic relationships with, with women there. And of yeah. course, as, as other historians, Susan Zeiger has written a wonderful book called Entangling Alliances about war brides. And, and that's clearly linked to my story because as men and social commentators are busily, busily chastising women for, for sort of breaking off relationships or perhaps engaging in infidelity during the war, men are most certainly doing so in, in, in greater numbers and in some cases that, that leads to, to marriage with women overseas. So thinking about what happens after the war, clearly Tens of thousands of soldiers marry women in, in occupied mm. places, which is something my last book touched on a little bit. Um, but sort of moving ahead into the 1950s and into the 1960s, uh, I think a, a sort of large strand of, of my story will will tap into the Vietnam War. And, and this is the war when, at least according to some prominent psychiatrists, more Dear John letters were sent than in any other okay. any other war. Of course, that's a, an empirical claim that's impossible to validate. But but the idea that that, that individual, um, he's called Dr. Emanuel Tanay, and others sort of picked up on was a notion that because this was an unpopular war, that the sorts of, sorts of social support that had existed to, to buoy up women whose men had gone off to war in, in previous wars was now no longer prevalent. And so uh, bereft of all of the sort of prompts from society reminding women that they were doing a good and patriotic thing in remaining faithful to, to men at war, that, that women were simply breaking off these relationships. Now, I find this really intriguing because I think from my World War II research, I mean, there was so much very similar commentary in World War II that women were being unfaithful, that they were sending these dear John letters, that this was all terrible. And I don't think too many World War II veterans, certainly not the one the ones whose oral histories I listened to at um, the Library of Congress and elsewhere, I don't think they would have had any truck with the idea that it wasn't until Vietnam that, okay. that women were really engaged in this perfidious practice of terminating romantic relationships. But I think it is a very striking part of the sort of mythology of, of the Vietnam War, a, a sort of counterpart, if you like, to the myth of the spat-upon veteran. That This is a, a really pervasive trope of veteran storytelling, that as soon as they land, coming back home from the war that at LAX and, and other airports they're being spat at. Um, critical historians, having um, sort of dug deeply into this mythology, have argued that this almost certainly didn't happen or happened so infrequently that we can really ascribe it to urban mythology. Um, so I think there's something very similar going on with the Vietnam Tia John letter. So these are some of the, the sort of longer running themes of the project that I want to trace out, obviously drawing on the work, the work of, of, of gender and um, historians of sexuality who's done all sorts of work on, on marriage. Um, obviously, if I'm taking the story up to the present day, I will also be looking at um, the fact that the military became more open-minded about who could marry whom, um, about non-heterosexual relationships. Um, so that's where I hope to get up to. Great, that's fascinating. Um, so moving away from this paper, um, I'd love to ask you, what is a book or article you've read in the last 12 months that really interested and excited you, academic or otherwise? Well, maybe a little bit 
um, longer ago than 12 months. I think that the book that has done the most to shape my thinking about this very project is an anthropological study of, of Fort Hood in Texas by a young scholar called Kenneth McLeish. And, and his book was published by Princeton, um, I guess, about five years ago. And it's just a fantastically rich ethnography of, of what life is like at a base in wartime or in the midst of sort of permanent war. And a lot of my earliest thinking about the way in which the military tries to instrumentalize love, this incredibly um, diffuse realm of feeling that is, of course, um, really, really hard to manipulate, to, to manage, to sort of muster into the service of war making. And yet that's what the military has been doing. And I think that's become ever clearer through practices or programs like the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program that he talks about a bit. Um, and, and it's how that project of trying to make love work for war, how we could sort of try to find a, a sort of trajectory over multiple decades that I really want to do. But I found that that study, he's incredibly sympathetic to the men and women that he lived with for, for many months at Fort Hood. And at the same time, he's also a very critical and astute thinker about war. So his writing is, is something that I found very, very rich. Um, more recently, within the, your last 12 months time frame, <laughs> a, a book that, again, I, I think the highest compliment to me that, that one could pay another scholar is when you've read their book, that it just makes you wish you were at a point that you too were writing. Um, so this was Christopher Hager's book called I Remain Yours, and it's a study of civil war letter writing. So he's looking very often at people who are really just gaining literacy skills in the course of writing to their loved ones at war and he is just a gorgeous writer it's a deeply sensitive study of everyday literacy and I would love to write a book that is as phenomenally smart and sensitive and just fantastically well written as as his Great. Sounds like some good book recommendations there. <laughs> well, but interested in, in war um, and in the realm of feeling as it's yoked into martial purposes, I would highly commend those two books. Thank you. Um, so in your career as a professional historian, where is the most interesting place you've been to for research? Well, maybe I've already actually answered that question because um, the, the Library of Congress, their, their, their Veterans History Project, I, I've been to more than once now, the archivists there are phenomenally helpful, as archivists often are. They are the, the often undersung heroes and heroines of our, our profession. But because that that's actually... Um, physically located in the Folklife Centre, which may seem a little bit counterintuitive. The, the people that I was interacting with during my fortnight-long stay last March, April are ethnographers. So they were giving me all sorts of very helpful pointers from English folkloric song traditions um, of the 16th or 17th century, things I would just never have, have thought of. So I, I love those archivists and they have been incredibly helpful to me. Um, but there are many other places that certainly for researching the last book were just fantastic. Um, biggest archive envy or campus envy was definitely going to Duke because it's a, <laughs> a beautiful, uh, gorgeous, um, horticulturally lavish campus with oodles of money and what's not to like about those things. Great. Sounds like some, yeah, wonderful places. Um, so as finally, as is tradition in the Cambridge American History podcast, I have to ask you one last question. Um, what is your favourite album? Well, I am a huge fan of Richard Thompson, 
who was an English-born um, singer-songwriter who, who now lives in the United States. And he's been doing his thing for about as long as, as I've been alive. And I've seen him many times in, in both Britain and the United States. And he's a phenomenal guitar player, but he writes these beautifully realized songs that are often just a sort of perfectly conjured world unto themselves. But at least a decade ago, he, he did an album called A Thousand Years of Popular Music, which began with him uh, doing his take on, on Madrigals, which is very good for Cambridge, um, and, and, and went all the way up to Britney Spears' Oops, I Did It Again, which he did in when I saw him live in a sort of madrigal version, if you can picture the scene. So that, to any historian, is a fantastic uh, sort of journey through a thousand years of, of, of popular music with all sorts of different traditions that he taps into and renders in his own inimitable style. So if you don't know it, um, he's an amazing guitarist as well as being a fantastic songwriter and singer. So... Go listen. Yeah, I'll have to check mm. it out. Well, thank you, Professor Carruthers, for speaking with me today. I look forward to hearing more about your work at our seminar. Well, thank you very much.